Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Second Peter chapter three, beginning in verse eight. We are going to study this passage in the light of the first coming of Christ as he came, the king coming to Jerusalem. That's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. So we will study this passage in the light of the triumphal entry in Luke 19. Let us read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and following. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our heart's patience means our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Heavenly Father, let us take heed to this passage that the King is coming again. And even as we look to his first coming and the purpose for that coming, let us draw to Christ with faith and trust for our salvation before you, that we can have peace with you who gave us life. And then let us live each day of the lives you give us here in the light of his coming again and our home of righteousness in the new heaven and the new earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Palm Sunday is the celebration of the day that Jesus came to Jerusalem when he came to go to the cross. It's a week before his resurrection on, uh, that we'll celebrate next week. So let's turn to Luke and see how the crowds praised Jesus when he first came. But there was something not quite right in their praise. And I think as we pay attention to that, we can ask ourselves what we are praising God for this morning. In Luke chapter 19, verses 28 and following, uh, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And we need to realize that we usually 
underestimate the messianic expectations that the people had for Jesus. They knew he was the Messiah because he did the miracles. He could walk on water. He could heal the sick. He could even raise the dead. Nobody could do this except he come from God. So they knew he was the Messiah. But something happened so that at the beginning of the week, though they were praising him, by the end of the week, they were calling for his crucifixion. Hmm. How's that? This passage, this Sunday, ties our two studies over the winter in Daniel and in Second Peter together. Because in Daniel, we remarked on it last week, uh, among the prophecies of Daniel, and he's just one among the many prophets of the Old Testament, he prophesied about the kingdom of God coming. And he told about the four kingdoms from Nebuchadnezzar's all the way to the coming of the kingdom of God through the Messiah. One of his pictures was of the Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the statue uh, that represented the four kingdoms. And then the kingdom of God came and, and uh, destroyed it, knocked it over. And that stone that was uncut by human hands, a kingdom that is not like the kingdoms of this world, grew to fill the whole earth. Can you imagine living in Jerusalem under the thumb of the Roman Empire longing for the Messiah, studying those passages like we studied over the winter in Daniel, counting the kingdoms from Nebuchadnezzar's to the Medo-Persian to the Greek, now to the Roman, expecting the kingdom of God to come. They were looking for the Messiah. There were zealots who uh, tried to fulfill the Messianic prophecies by leading the revolt against Rome in the centuries before Jesus came. So they... They thought they had found him in Jesus, and indeed they were right about him being the Messiah. And when he came to Jerusalem at the end of his third year of ministry, they were ready to praise him. So let's read about his coming uh, to praise him, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 19 in Luke. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. Jesus was doing this because the Old Testament uh, prophesied that the king would come to Jerusalem uh, riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now you could say, well, he was self-fulfilling this prophecy. He read the prophecy. He did this to show fulfillment. Yes, he did that. But that's not the only thing he was fulfilling in Old Testament prophecy. He just wanted people to notice, I am the king. I am coming to Jerusalem. I am the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He began to point out then their false expectations of the Messiah. Because there were other Old Testament prophecies he came to fulfill. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says that the one who had come would come as a suffering servant. By his wounds 
we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was demonstrating that he came in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. But he wasn't coming to establish an earthly kingdom. He was praised by the crowds. But he was rejected by the leaders in Israel. Let's read on in the passage. When he came, as, far, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were excited because here's one who could fulfill all those messianic prophecies. Here's one who could free them from Rome. Here's one who would restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel. We know that was on their minds because even Jesus' disciples asked him after his resurrection, Lord, at what time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They kept thinking earthly kingdom. And in some ways you can't blame them. Just consider the prophecies of Daniel. Four earthly kingdoms and then a kingdom with a stone uncut by human hands. I didn't catch the implications there that it was not an earthly kingdom, but it would come, destroy the other kingdoms, fill the whole earth. And they had wonderful expectations of the kingdom of Israel being restored and growing and becoming the empire of the earth. And here's one who could do it. If he can walk on water... If he can heal the sick, if he can raise the dead, this is small potatoes for him. So they were excited about his coming. Well, there was opposition already from the leaders. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus was worthy of this praise. He was the Messiah. Uh, this was the way the king ought to be received as he enters into uh, Jerusalem. But he knew their expect expectations were not quite right. In the next verse we find, and this is where the overlap with our passage in Second Peter begins. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept. In his weeping, we know something of the heart of God. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus was weeping over the very sin in Jerusalem that would reject him and put him on that cross. He wasn't weeping for himself. He came to go to that cross. It was his love that moved him to lay down his life for us to pay the penalty for our sin. But he knew what it meant for those who were rejecting him and doing that to him. And it would be easy for us to understand in our human nature that he would have just rebuked them and said, you don't know what you're doing, but you're going to get it. 
But that wasn't the heart of God. Do you see how that overlaps with our passage in, in 2 Peter verse 8? Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Last week we talked about different ways of understanding uh, that verse. But at least we can know that God doesn't delight in punishing our sin. He doesn't delight, he doesn't dance over judgment. He is holy and he must punish sin. He must judge. Jesus, as he comes to Jerusalem, knows he's coming to go to the cross. But he says, if, if you only knew what would bring you peace. He wept over their wrong expectations. He wept over their desire to have an earthly kingdom that would be like the rest, only bigger and better and fill the earth. He knew that Rome was not their biggest enemy. Their biggest enemy was death itself. And that death was caused by sin, that we would turn away from the one who gave us life. He knew that was the big problem, and he came as king to conquer the big enemies, sin and death, by going to the cross. But he didn't gloat over the ones who had it wrong. He wept over them. Now, there's some mystery in this. We started on it last week. If God is sovereign... And yet he weeps over the sinful rejection of Jesus. Could he not just give everybody the gift of faith? Could he not, by his spirit, call everyone from spiritual death to spiritual life? Couldn't he change every one of us? You know, when, in, when I was in seminary, I, I began to come to grips with what the Bible teaches about predestination and the election and God's sovereignty even over our salvation I got to a point where I thought this is what the Bible says but I don't like God as much you ever been there I thought it was better to have a God who wished everybody well but who couldn't accomplish anything because the final thing was up to us I thought that was better of God than to think No, we're spiritually dead. He has to call us to life and give faith to us so that we would come to faith in Christ. And you know what I started thinking? I started thinking, this is what the Bible says. And this is what you can do. But if you can do it for one person, why don't you do it for everybody? If I were God, I would give everybody the gift of faith. I would call everybody from death to life. That's not beyond you, is it? I began to wrestle with God that this is true, it's in the Bible, but you're not as nice a God as I thought you were. I would, and when I started realizing, I'm thinking, I would be a better God than you. That's when I read in Romans, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Time to stop. And it's time to accept the mystery. That God is sovereign over these things. We're responsible for our rejection of Christ. But he gets the credit when he gives us faith and raises us from death to life. 
and yet his heart is that he doesn't delight in punishing sin. I can't get it all together in my mind, can you? But it's what the Bible says. And when I accept it, then I begin to find a comfort in the fact that God is not up there in, God, in heaven delighting in judgment. He delights in his saving grace. He delights in us as his children. And I just leave it to him that I couldn't do it better than he could. It's his will, his choice to do what he would will. And then I began to realize there's a real upside to this. Because if God is up in heaven wishing everybody would come to faith, telling the church, go out and tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has died for sins and everyone who believes in him can have eternal life. And then you be my salesman and I want you to close the deal. We'd start jumping down people's throats. We'd try to corner them. We'd try to make sure that somehow we work their emotions to, to make them come to Christ. Because it's up to us as salesmen to make that happen. And we become obnoxious Christians doing that. It's a whole lot better to say, this is what God has offered. It's the outward call of the gospel. That he loved us even while we were yet sinners. And Christ died on the cross to pay for sins. Come and put your faith in him. But it's not our job to change the heart. That's God's job. And we can see where God is at work. So we build a playground. We invite people to come. We, we, we do remember that the end goal is not to have a playground where we can play or even have a great social club. That's not the end point. Our desire is that people would come to know Christ. And so we think of ways to build bridges. We try to strategize evangelism. But we realize in the end, we're making an offer entirely dependent on God to change the heart. And God doesn't delight in judgment. He delights in mercy Let's just accept the mystery that is there and let us delight in God instead of criticize him. Hmm. So let's go forward uh, from that. Jesus went on as he approached Jerusalem to proclaim a day of judgment. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He wept over and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. If we didn't have Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, we might attribute to him a gloating attitude. <laughs> you're, go, you're crucifying me. This is what you're going to get for it. That's not at all the way Jesus showed the will of God to us. He's more like the parent over the child who is headed out into a disastrous life in rebellion, getting into things that the parent knows this is going to hurt you. And the parent weeps weeps over that, calls the child to come back. He says, if, if you only knew what would make you happy, if you only knew what would make you, would, would bring you peace, if you only knew, it, it's that kind of breaking heart as Jesus warns about the destruction to come. Now in this passage, he's actually talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It really does happen. That's just an earthly picture of what 
Second Peter talks about in the day of judgment to come, when the king comes again. Let's turn to Second Peter. It's just phenomenal. Now, I think you know all of these, these different doctrines that I'm, most of you do that I'm teaching you, but you may have never seen how Jesus coming to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday overlapped with Peter's message at the conclusion of his letter. It says in verse 10, after he has said, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He's weeping over the rejection of him. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. He declares not just the destruction of a city, but of the whole earth all the kingdoms of the earth. This is the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. Now, when I was a teenager, I read the books in the twinkling of an eye and like a thief in the night. And this, that phrase, like a thief in the night, comes from verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Only I thought from those books and others teaching that a thief would sneak in in the middle of the night while everybody was asleep and take some things out of the house. And you'd wake up the next morning and wonder, where are those things gone? Where did they go? Where have they gone? And that's a very popular evangelical uh, expectation of the second coming of Christ. And we need to be careful not to, to uh, break friendship and fellowship with those who see it that way. Because they have at heart the longing for Christ to come again. That, that's wonderful. But when I was reading those books, my father came to me and he noticed I was reading those books. And he says, you know, people talk about Jesus coming like it's a secret thing, like a thief in the night is, is a sneak thief. But when I read the Bible, he comes with sudden destruction. He comes and the heavens will disappear with the fire. The elements will be destroyed, uh, will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. He said, I don't think you sleep through that. <laughs> I wonder what they do with that. And then he walked away and left me hanging. See, he didn't want to undermine me in my devotion to Christ, being inspired by the many who were in my life who were excited about the coming of Christ and feeding my desire to live for Christ until he comes again. He didn't want to break fellowship with that, but he didn't want me to settle in that as an, an attitude either. He, and I remember thinking, I need to figure this out. And one day, I, I will. That, that's as far as I got uh, as, as a teenager. Uh, now I see in the Bible, I put it before you, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, but it's not a sneak thief. It's the one you don't expect who comes like a marauding thief with sudden destruction. That's what the Bible says. And we should live with that expectation. This is not God up in heaven being vindictive, saying, you did this to my son, I'm going to do this to you. He doesn't delight in people perishing. But he does warn us about the destruction that is coming. That's a mercy so that in the light of that day coming, we can turn to the Lord Jesus Christ who's paid the penalty of our sin and we can find peace with God so that we can stand in that day. Peter then turns to applications. And uh, applications in this passage, there are three sense 
sins. S-I-N-C-E. You say, since this, then you should. These are applications. And uh, uh, Peter says in verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way. Notice he didn't say, since we believe everything will be destroyed in this way. He didn't say, since you realize everything will be destroyed in this way. In other places, he says, since you know this. It's just a fact, whether we accept it or not. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it? That's a clever bumper sticker until you think about it. It should be, God said it, that settles it, whether I believe it or not. Hmm. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's application. Think about that. Peter goes on to say, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. There are two parts here. The first place, we don't live holy and godly lives in order to escape God's judgment. He's talking to Christians. He's already talked to them about the gift of righteousness that is theirs through Christ. But as those who belong to Christ, we ought in the light of the day that is coming to want to live holy and godly lives. As I said earlier, there are times in this week as I reflect on this passage that I think, I'm so glad Christ didn't come in that moment. Can you think of moments in this past week that are like that. When we think in the light of his coming, how shall we live in the next week? We ought to live holy and godly lives. But it's not just that. As you look forward to the day of God and speed, it's coming. Do you look forward to the day of the Lord when Christ comes again? There are many liturgies that say something like, O Lord, come, come thou quickly. And it becomes rote saying for many. But it should be the, the Christian's heart. Now that is not a suicidal thought. It's not, oh Lord, I'm so tired and depressed about this fallen world that I just would love to, to take my life and get to heaven. It's not that. We love life that God gives us every day of it here. But we do so in the light of the here and now is temporary and transient. And the last chapter of our lives is eternal life and glory. The next to last chapter is a pretty tough chapter. It really is. And much of life in this fallen world can be a pretty tough life. But because we have eternal life, we can live each day with the joy and the purpose that transcends our circumstances. Do you know that? Do you live life in the light of his coming so that each day we say, Lord, help me to glorify you. Help me to show others who don't know Christ the difference that it makes to have hope in Christ when I face this illness, when I face this broken, this rejection in a broken relationship, when I face uh, this financial stress or the job loss, when I face the insecurities of this world, when when I am suffering here, let me show others in this world the difference that it makes to know you. And that's living a godly life in this world. And we look forward to the day of his coming. It's knowing that last chapter is glorious that makes, it, makes us able to deal with life in the present. That day 
will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Why would we look forward to that day? Let me come back to the illustration of my face. It is on fire. It is poetic justice for the sunburns that I got when I was a young person. That I have sun damaged skin and the dermatologist says let's burn off your face. It's sunburn time again. Let's just peel all the damage away. It's a poetic justice. And I said, a matter of fact, the dermatologist said, you know, I could, I could freeze off 10 spots on your head. I said, well, I'd heard about the cream. I'd seen others do the cream. I said, well, what's the threshold for doing the cream? She said, well, the cream is more thorough. It's not cheap. And it's not easy. But... I said, it's more thorough, and my brother has just been through skin cancer. I thought, let's do thorough. You know, I eagerly await. I, I, I had a, a, a dermatologist, PA, in our congregation look at my face and say, that is a beautiful reaction. <laughs> Only a dermatologist could look at my face and say that. But I'm doing this on purpose because I look forward to having Baby smooth skin again. <laughs> Somebody told me last week, you'll never have baby smooth skin again. <laughs> I know that. But it's, I, you see, I'm doing it with purpose. The day of the Lord is coming and it will melt away everything in this fallen world. This world will be destroyed, but we look through that to the outcome. The outcome is in the next, next verse, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness. Do you look forward to that? That's what is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he has paid for our sins, given us his righteousness. Uh, all the stuff in our lives that is, is, uh, is sinful will be burned away. We will be perfected and glorious in that new home of righteousness. We can look forward to that. That's the first application. The second application builds on that. He says, since, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, don't you love it? If you, if you don't make the first application, you can't even get to the second one. You, he's already lost you. But we know about the coming of Christ again. We know the doctrines. We need to stir them up and think about them again. And we think, yes, I do look forward to the final chapter in glory. And then he builds on that. He says, since then, uh, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless. Face analogy and illustration again. Spotless. I look forward to that. Blameless and at peace with him. When, I, when the scripture exposes sin in my life, it's sin in your life. How eager are you? To peel that away because you want to be found spotless and at peace with him. Those are the moments that we don't want him to come again when we're not at peace with him because we're living to fulfill our own desires and pleasures instead of living for him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, referring back to what he's already said in this, earlier in the same chapter. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Pay attention here. This is really interesting here. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. 
His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Why is this so interesting and important? Because Peter is not saying to his readers simply, listen to me. I'm the lead apostle of Jesus. He's saying, listen to us through whom God has revealed his word. And he refers to Paul, who is a persecutor of the church. And he says of Paul that he writes in the same way in all his letters as Peter is writing here. He says, yep, some ignorant and unstable people distort those things. We distort the scriptures when they're not pleasing to us. It's what I was doing when I was was wrestling with God saying, "If, if, if if you choose whom you will to save, then that's just fatalism. No, it's not just fatalism. It's a mystery, but it's not just fatalism. Or if we say, if we're responsible, then the final decision must be ours. You just have to watch and wait. No, that's not right either. There are a hundred thousand ways we can twist and distort the scriptures to make them make sense to us. Don't study the Bible that way. Study the Bible saying, I want to know what it really says. And then change your mind to fit the scripture instead of distorting scripture to fit what we want it to say. But then Peter says, which people distort as they do the other scriptures. Now, Peter was a, a Jew among Jews. He understood when he said scriptures, which simply means writings. He wasn't talking about as they do newspapers. When he says distorting the other scriptures, he's talking about the word of God. Peter is saying what Paul has written in his letters is the word of God. How's that for vouching for Paul? And in fact, it's not just Paul. It's all of scriptures. Peter's saying, listen to us because God has revealed his word through us. It's the whole Bible, Old Testament and New, that is the word of God. So since we look forward to this day, let's, found, be, let's make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace. All of the Bible talks about this. It's not just Peter. This is the call of God through his word. And then there's one more sense. That's in verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this. Wow, that's the preacher's verse. I wonder how many of you would say, I learned something brand new this morning. I didn't know this at all before. Most of you probably already knew Jesus is coming again. And we ought to live our lives for him so that we'd be found uh, living for him when he comes again. You already know that we're not earning our salvation. All these things are since you already know this. The fact is what we already know settles to the bottom in our lives. It's like that orange juice at the bottom of French mint tea. Give it an hour or two and it doesn't taste right anymore because we have to stir it up to keep it fresh. We have to stir up what we already know so that we leave this place consciously living for our Savior in the light of his coming. It's not just enough to already know it. It's to be stirred up and live by it. Since you already know this, be on your guard. There are two, it's a negative and a positive. Be on your guard and grow. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. It's easy for a church to say, I already know that, I already know that, I already know that. We're just going to focus on what, what makes us happy. 
We're going to draw people in by building a playground. But we, and we already know the gospel. But if the next generation only hears, we've got a good social club. What does the church become? Just a social club. And what one generation already knows, the next generation doesn't even realize, has forgotten. That's how drift happens. We need to constantly keep this stirred up within us so that we're on our guard from being carried away by, by uh, the errors, the, those that would say, this is what you really want to hear. This is how you can really be happy. This is what will make the church grow by telling the world, come on, and we, we were happy people without introducing them to the gospel of sin and righteousness and judgment, but grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be on our guard, because it's easy to do. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That should be your theme. How many of you have been thinking this week, Lord, I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What what does it mean to grow in the grace of Christ? Oh, his grace to me makes me gracious with others. It makes me quick to forgive sin, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love as as he is. Help me grow in that. Help me grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the more I know him, in love with him, the more I grow like him. Is that the theme of your life? Is that the banner? Do you say, I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in the way I prepare my taxes? Hmm. Whoa. He knows what you're doing. In your work, in your play, in your leisure, in your pursuits. Is that, is that the theme of your life? You probably say, I know it ought to be that way. Let's stir it up and let's live that way this week. Since you already know this, be on your guard and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Jesus, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. You see, he is still cleansing the temple. At the end of his triumphal entry, the next passage uh, says that he went into the temple. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said, for them, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus cleansed the temple. Who's the temple of the Holy Spirit today? We are. Do you think God cares how we as the temple of the Holy Spirit conduct ourselves? Oh, we're not earning our salvation. But he's still at work cleansing his temple. Praise and glory be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus came first to go to the cross. We look forward this week to celebrating that with the Lord's Supper on Thursday night, the night he established it with his disciples before he went to the cross because that's the point for which he came to Jerusalem the first time so that when he comes again, we can stand in the day of judgment because of his grace and mercy. We pray that you would enable us to live in the light of that this week in such a way that we would be different people than if we didn't know your grace and your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.